Good evening, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? Even in the back? Brilliant, fantastic. I'm Dr. James Brooks, the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening lecture tonight, and especially grateful for you all for uh, braving the oppressive heat that we're dealing with at the moment to come out here. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all of the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who helped endow this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Tonight's lecture is gonna be doubly special because it derives from our partnership with the Wilton House Museum. Wilton House, as many as, as you know, now stands on the James River as a beautiful example of restored Georgian architecture. And the house serves as headquarters to the Virginia chapter of the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America, as well as hosting public programs and educational exhibits in order to increase understanding of life in Virginia since the 18th century the paradox of hardship amongst elegance, and how the past continues to shape life in the United States today. So very soon I'll be handing over to Joe Rizzo, who's the executive director over at Wilton, and he'll be introducing our speaker today. But just before that, I wanna run through one um, upcoming event announcement, and that's gonna be our next lecture, which will be held in person here in the Robbins Forum, and it's gonna take place next Thursday, August 3rd at noon. Mills Kelly, a professor of history at George Mason University, is gonna be here to speak to us about a 300 mile section of the Appalachian Trail that was lost after a rerouting decision in 1952. Can I just ask you all to just take a brief moment to check your mobile phones and just make sure everything's switched off? And I'd now like to pass over to Joe Rizzo, who, as I said, is the executive director of the Wilton House Museum and he's gonna be introducing tonight's speaker. Great, thank you, James, and thank you for hosting us here tonight and for eloquently explaining Wilton House Museum. Uh, for anyone who has not yet been to Wilton and the west end of Richmond, uh, we urge you and hope to see you at Wilton for a tour soon. Uh, I will say that we do have some programs coming up. Uh, up coming up next, we have the conclusion of our Jammin' on the James Summer Concert Series. Uh, so on Saturday, August 12th, we'll be having some live music on the lawn overlooking the James and the house and house tours preceding that concert. Uh, so bring a picnic in your lawn chair and hope to see you there. I'm also excited to say that next week we will be releasing the uh, lecture series coming up for 2023 and 2024. Uh, please follow us on social media and that's where we'll first be mentioning uh, the upcoming lecture series. And I also hope to see you there for those monthly lectures. Uh, I'm very excited to be working with VMHC on this program and some other partnerships upcoming, uh, but especially for tonight's lecture by Dr. James Brumall, who will be speaking on At the Cannon's Mouth, Battlefield Relics and the Making of Civil War Memory. From death coats to shattered tree stumps, Civil War Americans actively collected and displayed objects of war. These battle pieces appeared in small museums at the turn of the 20th century to help visitors understand the blasted landscapes from which they came. This evening's lecture will explore the lives of artifacts after they were taken from the battlefield in order to understand how they were informed, how they informed the construction of memory. 
objects with violent histories both contested and confirmed the prevailing discourse of romanticism in the 19th century. On the one hand, Americans clung to things connected to death and violence. On the other, Americans projected violence as regenerative to justify bloodshed. And exploring this topic is Dr. James Brumall. Uh, he's an associate professor of history at Shepherd University and the director of the George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War, which promotes dialogue among popular and academic audiences by integrating scholarship, education, and engagement. Jim is a cultural historian of the era and has published many articles and essays in journals and magazines. He's also the author of Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. And I did check and I believe you all are selling the book if anyone's interested in that after this lecture. Jim's current project and the subject of tonight's lecture is titled Battle Pieces, The Art and Artifacts of the American Civil War Era. Please join me in welcoming Dr. James Brumall. Good evening. How are you all? Good. Very well. Good. Okay. Um, I generally move, but I know I can't move because of the microphone here. So um, we'll see how this goes. But um, uh, thank you uh, very much to Graham. I think Graham's in the audience uh, for helping to organize this, um, and then especially, of course, uh, my good friend Jimmy and Joe. I really appreciate uh, the invitation to come down here. It's been some some years since I've been to Richmond, um, and uh, the facilities since the renovation are absolutely. Uh, breathtaking, and I had a nice tour of the reading room where I'd spent many weeks years ago while I was dissertating and then working on the first book. And so thank you um, for everything they've done. So tonight I'm going to think or have you think about the relationship between people and things, objects, how we shape objects and how objects in turn shape us. And I'm going to start this conversation with a story that may be somewhat familiar to a number of you because of the central figure pictured above. And that, of course, is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Now, in 1895, Holmes, by that time a famed jurist, but also a veteran of the American Civil War, pronounced to Harvard's graduating class that the Civil War generation had shared in that very evocative phrase, the incommunicable experience of war. Now, Ken Burns later immortalized that phrase in his documentary, but it had been invoked numerous times since Holmes first offered it in 1895. Interestingly, though, what words sometimes fail to convey about war, perhaps materials or material culture could do. And indeed, Civil War Americans, soldiers, and citizens alike actively collected objects that were, to borrow from Holmes again, touched with fire. We'll take the famous jurist. Upon his death in 1935, the belongings of his house were inventoried. Two coats were found hanging in a closet with a small tag that read, quote, these uniforms were worn by me in the Civil War and the stains upon them are my blood. It's absolutely remarkable. One of the times in which he was wounded, is in the background image here, is the West Woods of Antietam. So concerned that when his father was telegraphed the news, he immediately set off from Cambridge, Massachusetts, 
to Sharpsburg, Maryland, desperately looking for his son. Holmes himself thought that the wound would ultimately prove mortal. It did not, of course. The Civil War forced Americans to confront two unrelenting realities. From the conflict's earliest days, the number of dead and wounded far surpassed even the grimmest of projections. The war's frenetic pace, technology's destructive capacity, the often rushed nature of battlefield burials meant that as many as 40% of all wartime dead went unidentified. Yet, as the scholar Kirk Savage observes, identity of physical remains was vitally important to soldiers and their families because it was only through the presence of a bodily form or the relics of that form that the living could recognize the dead and commune with them. And we'll circle back to Holmes. As he lingered on the fields of the Antietam battlefield, he dashed off a small note in his scrapbook, quote, I am Captain O.W. Holmes, 20th Mass, son of Oliver Wendell Holmes, M.D., Boston. Holmes's body would have an identity because of the object he curated, an item, I might add, that eventually became a relic, a cherished artifact from the battlefield now housed at Harvard Law School's library and in the special collections therein. The scrapbook was saved, of course, because of his associations with the famous man, but also because it transmitted a powerful message about war. Americans were indeed endlessly fascinated with objects and items from the battlefield from the frock coat, which I'll talk about here in a minute, of Elmer Ellsworth, to the cape and cap worn by General A.P. Hill as he fell near the conflict's end, just south of us here. Thousands, tens of thousands of objects from the battlefield were saved, collected, and eventually displayed. Pieces of wood riddled by bullet and shell, blood-stained clothing, discarded military equipment, locks of hair from a fallen soldier. These were all transmitted into silent testimonies of violence. And Americans greedily collected these items, resulting in what one scholar has described as a massive traffic in things. Quite literally, millions of items were redistributed across the country. Items that portrayed the violence of armed conflict, conveyed the sacrifice of blood, and outwardly, transmitted the contested memories of war. And so the question or questions rather they're going to guide us are twofold. The first is why? Why did 19th century Americans collect battlefield relics? And as I'm going to argue here, it was a bit unprecedented, both on scale and the type of things that they saved. And then second, how did they in turn how? How did they come to understand the conflict through material culture? Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to look at two bodies of evidence. One, evident, one body of evidence is intimate. It's evocative. Blood-stained, bullet-shot garments. Items that were taken off the dead, 
and returned to their families to become incorporated into the mourning process. And on the other end of the spectrum, pieces of wood, bits of trees, battle damaged, bullet shot, common souvenirs that were collected by veterans and citizens alike. So one profoundly intimate and evocative body of evidence, and one that in some ways was rather banal. And I'll start with the former. The two men pictured before you, Colonel Elmer Ellsworth and Lieutenant Colonel John Q. Marr, one Union, one Confederate, are the first officers to fall in the American Civil War. Ellsworth, a dashing figure politically well-connected, led the 11th New York Volunteers, also known as the First Fire Zouaves, to Washington, D.C. in the fateful spring of 1861. By May 24th, he was dead, shot by James Jackson at the Marshall House in Alexandria. Lieutenant Colonel John Q. Marr, pictured on the lower right-hand side, descended from a military family and was a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. He served in the Warrington Rifles. In the early morning hours of June the 1st, he fell in a small skirmish just outside of Fairfax Courthouse. Now, Ellsworth and Marr became martyrs to their respective causes, and stone monuments later enshrined their memories. But first, the material culture, material culture commemorated their deaths. The officers' complete uniforms were immediately saved, transmitted to the family, and later preserved in museum collections. Marr's uniform resides today at the American Civil War Museum. Ellsworth's is housed in Albany, New York. And these garments are going to be deployed and used by the families in different ways that we're going to explore here over the course of the next couple minutes. Ellsworth's death immediately electrifies American audiences. Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper features an engraving that immediately puts readers in the fray on May 24th. The garment pictured shows a large gaping hole on the left breast, a caption titled, Sketch of the Coat Worn by Colonel Ellsworth when he received his death wound at the hands of the murderer, Jackson. Ellsworth's uniform was, according to another report, considerably stained with the blood of Jackson, for he too fell almost immediately after killing the officer, this man right here, a corporal. And although the articles have sentimental language threaded throughout them, the blood-stained coat immediately forces audiences to grapple with the sacrifice that will be necessary to preserve the Union. Now, for Mars' part, his family receives an anonymous gift. Later, we learn that it was gifted by Mary Anna Custis Lee, the wife of Robert E. Lee and the mother of two sons in Confederate service. To express her sympathies to the Marr family, she provides a veil, writes of her deepest sympathies, 
and says that she too has loved ones in military service and fears for their lives. The Mar family preserves the veil along with the overcoat and the short jacket that he wore on the morning of his death. Now, interestingly, we have an opportunity to understand how the family thought about these garments because once they transmitted these two items to what now is the American Civil War Museum, they wrote several letters. They said, you must position the garment so that the bullet hole can be seen. And then they sent a subsequent letter offering all sorts of descriptions of how the garments might be hanged so as the overcoat as well as the jacket itself could prominently display the bullet holes and potentially hint at the bloodstains. These were extremely evocative items to these audiences. And one of the reasons why is because the uniforms themselves were incredibly idiosyncratic. This is the very beginning of the war, well before the military machine had ramped up and tens of thousands, eventually millions of uniforms are going to be manufactured. And instead, the hands, at least of the individuals killed and potentially even their families, were deeply entwined with the garments themselves. In the case of Ellsworth, he drew inspiration from the popular Zouav craze that sort of went across the United States in the wake of the Crimean War. You can see on the left-hand side, the rank and file of his regiment were dressed in baggy um, gray trousers um, set off by red sashes, red coats, and red kepis. And Ellsworth, in turn, creates this model gray jacket, potentially of his own design, and it becomes immensely popular. Conversely, Marr has a rather understated clothing that, again, was probably of his own creation. The Confederate government didn't actually issue orders regulating the dress until June the 6th, 1861, days after Mars' death. And so instead, he wore a jacket, not a frock coat, but a jacket that probably reminded him of his days at VMI because, indeed, cadets at VMI wore very similar coats. And because, even though it was the early summer, it was cool that morning, he sported an overcoat, a garment that may have been produced by his loved ones at home. And so when these clothing items go back to the Ellsworth family or to the Mara family, they can come in immediate contact with a loved one that they have immediately lost. And they start to incorporate these items into the mourning process in ways that are similar to, say, brooches of hair or other iconography, but they're objects of a very different nature because they've been touched with fire. Ellsworth's jacket, in, sorry, Ellsworth's jacket in particular, although most of the blood has been now removed, was quite bloodstained when it was taken off the body. It was quite visible. And Mars, too, on the inside, from a discussion I have with the curator, is deeply bloodstained as well. And so the families as they're navigating this process and navigating this war, begin to incorporate these elements of material culture into the mourning process. A newspaper reporter eventually visits the Ellsworth's family in upstate New York. And there they have a prominent display. They have Ellsworth's cap, his sword, and this evocative frock coat. His mother Phoebe would then show visitors a pocket Bible 
the last thing supposedly that Ellsworth had read with a marker at the 17th chapter of St. John. And she would often relate to people, it was the last chapter Elmer ever read in the world, often weeping as she related this news. So the Ellsworths began to pair his martial identity with his religious devotion. And indeed, this becomes part of this larger craze. There are dozens of objects taken from the Marshall House where Ellsworth is killed that Americans are clamoring for and desperate to take. And so this is the very beginnings then of some sort of larger shift that is occurring. And here it's useful to pause. Such items become civic relics for Americans swept up in civil war. Collecting has deep, deep roots. An intellectual drive to understand the early modern world led Europeans to amass and organize objects and what we often refer today as cabinets of curiosity. By the 18th and 19th century, an object-based epistemology, which relied on material culture, not textual descriptions, guided public and private collections. But the items often saved had linkages to the exotic or to the famous. And if objects were taken from the battlefield, they often related to the rigors of soldiering, not to the violence that was displayed. One notable exception is George Washington. George Washington kept the bloodied sash and pistols of General Edward Braddock, his mentor who was killed at the Monongahela, and they were items that he displayed at Mount Vernon, but that is a real aberration. Most of the collecting that was done from the revolutionary era, canteens, flags, drums, nothing bullet shot, violent, touched with fire. And what we can speculate, and in some cases what we can learn from the primary source materials, is that these relics were collected the frock coats, the overcoats, the jackets, because they retained and represented something of the spirit of the departed. Andrew Carpenter of the 4th Virginia Cavalry, for instance, stayed with Confederate General J.E.B. Stewart as he ling 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 lingered from wounds sustained at Yellow Tavern. Stewart's wife, Flora, gifted Andrew the general's haversack, haversack which he kept his entire life, quote, as a sacred memento of him whom I admired above all others. Cambridge, Massachusetts doctor Henry Bowditch, whose son Nathaniel died at Kelly's Ford in March of 1863, not only went to the battlefield and collected Nathaniel's items, including his bloody gauntlets, but then because of his associations with the abolitionist movement, sought out relics from the 54th Massachusetts and eventually assembled in his his Cambridge home, an entire cabinet of curiosities, similar to the European um, antecedents. These personal effects that carried such deep meaning about the sacrifices that were necessary for this conflict. But I do want to note, our modern sensibilities, I would argue, would probably cause us to recoil at such items. And there are contemporaneous examples. And I'll go back to Oliver Wendell Holmes, senior, 
So when the father came to find the son, it's a long, arduous journey that he eventually uh, uh, writes up in Atlantic Monthly, but he eventually goes to the Antietam battlefield, and he writes that he finds two soldiers' cap, caps. They looked as though the owners had been shot through the head. He said, quote, there was something repulsive about the trodden and stained relics on the stale battlefield. Something about his sensibilities caused him to recoil at these objects, whereas others seemingly incorporated them quite easily and seamlessly into the mourning process. Now, the next garment, just to warn you, is, is a bit graphic, but it illustrates this point very powerfully. And in many ways is what, oh, sorry, it's in many ways is what started this whole project. This is the frock coat of a 19-year-old soldier named Benjamin Shumpert. He fell in Georgia at the Battle of Chickamauga. Whereas Ellsworth's frock coat was ornate, modeled after that of the Zouaves, Shumpert's Confederate frock coat is plain and unadorned. He was a private in the third South Carolina. Came from a family of relatively moderate means. They enslaved several individuals. The very material, this peculiar homemade cotton, may have been produced by enslaved labor on the family's farm. On September the 20th, 1863, he sustains a devastating head wound. His cousin Osborne journeys to the battlefield, takes what he can of Shumpert's body and buries it, but then removes the coat and the trousers and immediately sends them back home. Just like the uniforms of Ellsworth and Marr, there's something idiosyncratic about this garment, something extremely personal about this garment, and the fact that it has remained in the condition that it has. It went into a private collection before entering the Atlanta History Museum in the 1990s, suggested that all these families maintained these items with tremendous care, and indeed, as we know, at least in the case of the Ellsworth family, outwardly displayed them to visitors to show the sacrifices that their family had made for the causes that their sons fought for. And so while Civil War battlefields will sever the connections between families, material culture continued to foster both physical connection and personal remembrance. The actions of the Ellsworth, Marr, and Shumpert families, as with countless others, reveal the deep importance of physical belongings from the deceased. These families transferred their distress onto uniform parts that they carefully maintained and even displayed. And while some were able to bury their dead loved ones near home, in many cases it was impossible to both retrieve and to reinter the body. So in lieu of remains, sending home personal effects became incredibly typical. Tally Simpson, another soldier who served with Ben Shumpert in the 3rd South Carolina, who likewise fell at Chickamauga, died. His body was never retrieved, but his watch, his ring, and his, quote, other things were returned to the family. Now, capturing the histories of these objects is incredibly elusive, but if you look through the catalogs 
of what was once Virginia's Confederate Museum, again today, the American Civil War Museum, there are quite literally dozens of examples, buttons, insignia plucked from coats, uniform parts taken from the battlefield, sent home to mothers and to wives and to sisters and to brothers. Bloodied uniforms, similar to Ben Shumpert's, removed entirely and then again transported home and incorporated into those families' cherished possessions. And so the relic had long relied then on a metaphorical equation between history and memory, on an understanding that collective history could be experienced as it were through personal memory and could thus be accessed through sentimental mnemonic forms. Relics were indeed both personal and collective. Now the examples of Shumpert and Marr, they remain in the private venues for decades after the war, but Elmer Ellsworth was someone different. He was a close friend of Lincoln. He laid in state in the White House before being transported to his final resting place in upstate New York. And so by 1864, the frock coat is taken from the family and is displayed at the New York Metropolitan Sanitary Fair. This is one of those exciting moments. I was doing some different searches online, not in an archive like I should be, and I found a digitized image from the New York Metropolitan Sanitary Fair. Dickinson College has an incredible online project, and they allow you to zoom in on a particular image. And center stage, as I zoomed in on that image, is this figure. And although the last name is misspelled, it says Colonel Ellsworth is not dead. And there is a description that the New York Herald published that said, there is a large wax figure displayed at the Metropolitan Sanitary Fair, dressed in the full uniform of the Colonel with sword, sash, and belt. And then Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper is the one that ultimately rendered the image. Now at some point, ultimately, the uniform was removed and this very elaborate display was created. Ellsworth pictured here central, the bloodied frock coat seen there, and again in sort of a bizarre twist of fate in 1996 as a very young intern in Albany, New York, I helped to curate and clean that very frock coat. Um, so it's bizarre how these worlds collide um, many years after the fact. Now, I want to bridge this conversation a bit, and I see we're at 30 minutes already here. And so I want to take us out of this very personalized arena and move us into a more public space, which the Ellsworth frock coat helps us to do. But I want to make this important caveat. The objects that we have just seen again resided almost entirely with the families, became central parts of their mourning processes, were incredibly intimate items. But there's a whole nother body of evidence, a whole nother body of relics that are collected from these battlefields that suggest a sort of darker side to how Americans are encountering these spaces and how Americans are interacting with these things.
Americans flocked, flocked to sites of combat. In the conflict's earliest days, William Howard Russell recalled of the Battle of Bull Run, quote, on the hill beside me, there were great crowds of civilians on horseback and in all sorts of vehicles, with a few of the fairer, if not gentler, sex. A few officers and some soldiers who had straggled from the regiments in reserve moved about among the spectators and pretended to explain the movements below. Now, we can assume July 1861, it's a circus-like atmosphere in the war. But the other instances continue. America's single bloodiest day, the Battle of Antietam, September the 17th, 1862. Sketch artist Edwin Forbes writes, the Battle of Antietam was probably the most picturesque battle of the war. It took place in a cornfield and could be fully viewed from any port point north of Antietam Creek. The engagement with the spectacle was not surpassed during the whole war, and here's the quote, as the hills were black with spectators. So densely packed had the countryside become with people that looked off from a distance to be sort of a dense moving mass. That's how many people witnessed the bloodiest day in American history. Now, more commonly, more commonly, citizens came to the battlefield after the fact. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. comes to Antietam days after the battle is over. Frank Leslie publishes this rather famous image of local citizens who have come to watch the burial parties at work. The forms mangled, incredibly graphic uh, portrait by Forbes. I don't know if this is hyperbolic or not, but we can see vultures coming in the background. We know the hogs often descended upon the fields to root among the dead. This is a bit grim, a bit, un, uh, a bit different than perhaps those other instances that I had earlier referred to. And while many came certainly in search of loved ones, many came to care for the wounded, many also came to seek relics from the battlefield, artifacts from the fight. One local boy writing of the Battle of Gettysburg said, at the time of the war, lead was very scarce and we could get 13 cents a pound for it. So the boys hunted lead bullets for profit. So in this case, they're actually looking for, for economic return. Another account re records, visitors soon became, uh, began to come to, the, to see the battlefield and they all wanted relics. We were always on the lookout for bullets and pieces of shell. In fact, anything that could easily be handled, we got and sold to them. We found that a piece of tree with a bullet embedded in it was a great prize and a good seller. Every boy went out with a hatchet to chop pieces from the tree in which the bullets had lodged. I found several trees with bullets in them that had met in midair and stuck together. These were considered a great find. And so these blasted trees then become extremely important on a number of different fronts. Now, on the one hand, they're incorporated into this larger traffic of items. Some pieces are publicly displayed like massive tree trunks that have become blasted. Others are whittled down into walking sticks or baseball bats. 
Some were hit by shell. Others were hit by bullets. But woods that had once been used for roaming livestock, that had been eyed for valuable timber, have been now decimated by war. Civilians and soldiers flocked to the damaged forests, amazed at the destruction. In this case, the resolution is not great, but this is Matthew Brady's famed stereo view of wounded trees at Gettysburg. Brady comes to the field on the 15th of July, 1863, long after the bodies have been buried. The bodies that are captured by his former colleague, Alexander Gardner. But Brady's of a different sort. Brady had been a prolific, popular photographer before the war. He had worked in many ways like an artist, like a landscape artist. He was compelled by the natural environment. So when Brady went to the field, he had not to worry that there were no bodies to be photographed because it was indeed the landscape itself that communicated everything that needed to be told. But nonetheless, for effect, he poses an assistant looking up either in contemplation at the damage or perhaps being posed, as it appeared in the newspaper, as a wounded soldier. The trees stand instead for the human form. And Americans greedily eyed these battlefields, though, despite the damage, looking for objects that had some association with a famous place. And indeed, the reasons why Americans did what they did varied. For veterans who returned to the site of a fight, these pieces of wood served as a record of battle. Veterans of the 55th Illinois, for example, returned to Shiloh after the war. In their post-war accounts, they write, all the trees of reasonable size are scarred and blotched by bullets. Relics can be obtained in any quantity. Among others, the writer cut from a tree two of the large bullets of the 54th Ohio, which had come together in the air and formed a solid mass of lead. A citizen engaged in splitting rails in the ravine in the rear position of the 54th found near the forks of two large limbs, six bullets condensed in one mass. And the description goes on, but for these men, it was the association with a site. So too, with this marked piece of wood from the West Woods, Dunker Church, the famed Brethren Church, um, that you can see today on the Antietam Battlefield, reconstructed from 1962, but the designation or association with the Antietam Battlefield, clearly a 19th or early 20th century um, placard, and then the bullet lodged therein. More of a souvenir item, a piece of wood that's been converted to a walking stick, again, with the telltale sign of that piece of lead. And these become, as I suggested, great prizes. Another example today housed at uh, the Gaysburg National Military Park is this tree limb from Culp's Hill, three bullets lodged in it. And you can just imagine this displayed on an American's mantle. In other cases, though, it's the power of the object itself, a power object, one might argue. And so if you look on the right-hand side, 
perhaps the most famous piece of wood from the war is this one. Not too far from here. It was taken from Spotsylvania Courthouse. One year after the battle, a Union general was sent to retrieve it and then in turn sent it to the U.S. Army Ordnance Museum. The Smithsonian received it in 1888 and ultimately it is still displayed today at the American History Museum. The ferocity of the fighting had been so great, the amount of lead poured into the air had become so high that a fully grown tree was eventually severed in two. And indeed, you find these descriptions from the battlefield, as seen here again from the wounded tree, Brady images, 20 feet high. The trees almost appear to be stripped of bark was the concentration of fire so great. And so these ions then are distributed through public and private collections in a variety of different capacities in the post-war period. So popular had these ions become that a market for forging them is created. And so I'm gonna sort of start bringing us home here. This is known as the Chickamauga tree. And again, it's sort of weird how the world works. I was on a dissertation committee and the person dissertating um, got to the time of his defense and he brought a piece of bullet shot wood to the defense. And everyone was very excited. And he said, yes, this is a piece of bullet shot wood from Chickamauga. I got as a very young boy, I was extremely excited. Only later to learn that it was almost definitely faked. And so what happened is that the demand for shot ridden trees, bullet ridden tree limbs had become so great that farmers in the area of Chickamauga and Chattanooga would go to living trees, take a hatchet, embed it, and then in turn embed a shot or a bullet and allow it to grow over slowly over time. And then they in turn would cut off a section of it. This section today is displayed in the Connecticut State House and sell it off as an authentic artifact. And so if you think about the profundity of Ellsworth's bloodied frock coat and almost the triviality of the faked Chickamauga tree, we can get some understanding of the spectrum of relics that ultimately were collected and consumed by 19th century audiences. And again, I think the key here is that they're all being put to a variety of different uses. There are more letters from Civil War soldiers than any previous conflict. Of course, the World Wars far surpass it, but it has been the biggest body of evidence that historians have relied upon to understanding, to use Whitman's tired phrase, the real war, to try to understand, and Holmes's phrase as I started with, the incommunicable experience of war. And indeed, these are powerful representations, these letters. They form much of the corpus of body, uh, much of the corpus of evidence that underpin my first book. But Americans also turned to the material world in many different ways to process these almost incomprehensible events. Artifacts from the battlefield thus embody and entwine different ideas about death and violence. 
Ellsworth's frock coat quickly enters the public arena, whereas Shumpert's remained with the family for decades. Both garments, stained in blood and torn by bullet, spoke to youthful sacrifice. More broadly, Civil War uniforms demonstrate how objects had lives that outlasted their makers and users. They possess and possessed a tangible reality, but they also conveyed very abstract ideas. Indeed, as Americans confronted a war of almost unparalleled destruction, they were attracted to these objects with violent histories. The display of bloodied uniforms, while essential eventually to the mourning process, challenged antebellum death rituals steeped in sentimentalism and romanticism. Juxtapose these two concepts, right? For in the pre-Civil War era, this was the mode of mourning, the gentle weeping willow, the lithograph that became incorporated into the home, the loved one that resided in the family cemetery or at the local churchyard. But yet, the unrelenting nature of this conflict left so many of the dead unidentified, left so many families unsure, unaware of the fate of their loved ones. A party of African-American soldiers in the area of Cold Harbor, deep after the time of the battle, collecting what are now just skeletal remains. So for these families that had such difficulty in reconciling these two images, these two powerfully different contrasts, in some ways, items like this capture those tensions. On the one hand, the Shumpert family can't get the body. They can't get the closure that was so essential to 19th century morning ritual, morning rite. But on the other hand, they can have a material connection to their son, Ben, a garment quite possibly stitched by his mother, possibly one of the women that Amos, his father, enslaved, but a garment that was probably produced at home. A garment that, on the one hand, outwardly portrays the violence, the, the terrible end that he met, but is incorporated into the broader process of mourning. Those are the tensions in this era that Americans are trying to reconcile. On the other hand, though, we have objects like this. Bullet and wood fragments. They're largely anonymous. They're often linked to a time and to a place, but they are seldom linked to an individual. Instead, they speak more broadly about the destructive capacity of war, about the Civil War's violence, even about the site itself, some connection to a famous place in the case of the Dunker Church. Americans wanted proximity to these events. Take again the example 
of the parties who visited the burial details, the droves of citizens who flocked to the battles, who flocked to the fields to see the aftermath, to witness this event that was unfolding before their eyes. And they wanted some physical, tangible connection to those sites, to those events, to those places. And they did so through the collecting of these souvenirs, or items that became souvenirs, taken directly from the field of battle. The singular power of these objects suggests why Civil War Americans, living amid monumental events, collected what would otherwise be mundane items. Think how many times a day we put on and take off a coat. It may have some sentimental value. It just as easily could be donated to goodwill. These are vital garments for comfort, but they generally don't hold deeper meaning. But yet, once they're associated with an event, with, an, with, a, with a death, they assume profound importance. The remarkably extensive material record from the war years illustrates the fervor with which relics were gathered and how important material culture had become to the creation of personal and social memory. And with that, I will close um, the formal portion of the talk here, and I will open it up to questions. Okay, and I'll open it up to questions, if you have any. Stun silence, okay. <laughs> yes. Hi, thank you, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, my guess is that most people didn't receive physical their coats or whatever. I mean, if you think about all the thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe they got a letter, maybe, from someone that was there or an officer or something. Is that true? Yeah, so, so an important sort of caveat um, is, and I have an article, this is sort of based on where I make these important caveats I didn't do today, this is definitely a com uh, skewed by, by socioeconomics. And so many of the individuals that I've cited came from well, relatively middle or upper class, relatively well-to-do middle or upper class families. Um, there are other examples that I have found. Um, there is a, a New York private, uh, lower socioeconomic level, who saved a coat. He didn't die, but he saved the coat as a keepsake from his war, but by and large is, is skewed. Um, the thing that nonetheless still surprises me is the number of objects that do survive, suggesting there's a pretty large traffic. Um, I looked at the 1909 or maybe it was 1906 catalog for the American Civil War Museum, which I briefly cited in here. And there are just dozens and dozens of examples. Now, grant, these are some of Virginia's wealthiest families. They're ultimately donating these, these items in the 1880s and 1890s. But still, there's such a, a large body of this evidence that I, I was kind of taken aback by it. To your other point, though, in the best of circumstances, an individual who died that death would be communicated really two ways. One would be by a messmate or a comrade. And so many of these soldiers make these internal agreements that essentially if I fall, you collect a few cherished items if possible, but you definitely write to my mother. One of the more powerful letters I ever read was from a, uh, a North Carolinian who died on the second day of Gettysburg, Leonidas Torrance and his friend W.O.J. Daniel had made this pact with, with um, 
with Leonidas and um, Daniel leaves Leonidas languishing on the field and what he describes as a muddy place. And he tells the mother, I tried desperately to, to help Lon. That's how he referred to him as, as Lon. I couldn't. He was taken back to a field hospital, but ultimately perished on the ninth. Officers and chaplains likewise had the responsibility of informing loved ones um, of the passing of a of a of a um, of a brother, sister, I'm sorry, brother, father, son. So oftentimes when you're reading the letter collections in an archive like the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, you get pretty involved because you're reading these exchanges that go on for months and years. And sometimes you turn to the very last page and you always kind of get this feeling in your stomach because they'll be lined in black. You'll know that the soldier died. And so that, that light, that black lined mourning letter communicated their death. And so they're very powerful artifacts in their own rights. And oftentimes when you go into these collections, you have some idea of course of the date range, but oftentimes if it's part of a larger collection, you have no idea. And so you can sort of see these soldier stories end right there before you. So the, the main means is that, but again, um, the, the historian Drew Faust really did this work and, and, and Faust estimates is about 40 or 45% of all soldiers are not only unknown, but their fates were probably not determined for months, perhaps years or ever after their loved ones passed. So that's the real sort of horror of this conflict is that a lot of the stories that we have are because of the individuals having the means to save items, to write letters, they themselves could write. They came from literate families. That's that skews a bit of our understanding of, of the real catastrophe of this conflict and, and the, the lack of resolution for many families. Yes, sir. Dr. Bumal, thank you so much for your guiding us through this sort of retrospective of post-Civil War America and the impact that the struggle had on people their families, friends, and local folks. If you go to Gettysburg today, you visit the marvelous visitor center, which is actually maintained by the foundation, the nonprofit foundation, uh, cooperating with the National Park Service. If you're as, as old as I am, you can remember going to Gettysburg 20, 30 years ago and being impressed by the number of small, privately owned museums where artifacts of almost every description could be found uh, for sale, of course. Um, and they are almost all gone. Now, it's, it's very difficult to find that sort of collection. And I think that uh, what you've explained tonight Take us back to the point where if we do go to a place like Antietam National Battlefield, Chickamauga, certainly Gettysburg, you will see marvelous collections, but you don't see very many examples of the kind of personal effort that the local people made to <laughs> one share or two sell history to the thousands of Americans that came to visit. Um, thank you for your comment. And um, to, to your point, the, the Gettysburg is the Rosenstiel collection at Antietam. It was O.T. Riley. And so for the audience members who may not know these names as well, um, many of these, they are generally men. Um, 
they were young boys during the wartime era or grew up in the post-war era and became really enamored with these sites. O.T. Riley, in the case of Antietam, um, became the sort of famed field guide of Antietam. He wrote a book about it, but then he was an avid collector. He actually created a monument that's off the battlefield today that includes live ordnance that um, I learned recently from the superintendent that they're having to diffuse. But, um, and what they would do is they would not only have these own, their little own private museums, but they'd have these relic stands. O.T. Riley had a relic stand just off the sunken road. Imagine that. One of the most sort of sacred spaces if you're a historian of the Civil War era or an enthusiast of the Civil War era, I mean, that's that's a site that, you know, is quite powerful, knowing what happened there. Riley had a souvenir stand right there. And so audiences could come and buy pieces of wood from the, um, the sunken road, uh, the fencing that lined it, they could buy bullets. Um, the fortunate, I guess, part of this story is that, and I have a Rosensteel piece in here, um, many of the items that were part of these private museums eventually become incorporated into the National Park Service. So Gettysburg houses large portions of the Rosensteel collection, including this piece. Um, Antietam has large portions of Riley's collection, but it's a very different experience than going to say a sort of curated private home. Now there are a few of those facilities that are still around, but they are increasingly rare. And I think it, it speaks to a number of different issues. Um, in sort of collecting practice, preservation practice, interpretation. Um, the older museums looked a lot more like the European, well, even this example, where there's no real description, the objects themselves speak. And museums today occasionally do these like retrospective exhibits where they experiment with this. Carnegie, a long time ago, had a really cool exhibit where they, they just put art all over the walls in a 19th century gallery fashion, no interpretation. Um, and today, the aesthetic would not allow for this. You know, it would be a lot fewer objects, a lot more interpretation. Um, but, you know, in the 19th century, early 20th century, and then, of course, in 17th, 18th century Europe, this was the aesthetic. Create symmetry and balance and allow the objects to do the speaking for you. Um, Thank you for a wonderful talk. Oh, um, just these are sort of two comments. One, one is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, an essay that Henry James wrote when he visited Richmond, probably around 1906. You mentioned the catalog of the, Ameri the Confederate Museum. He actually visited the White House of the Confederacy, and he talks about his visit. Um, he had come to Richmond with very romantic ideas about the Old South. Um, he hadn't, of course, he was an American, but he hadn't been here for years. Um, and he felt that going to the Confederate Museum, or what, whatever they called it at the time, um, the White House of the Confederacy, he was really looking at relics, which is pretty much what they had on display. Right. Um, he felt that he was in touch with what he had come to see. Mm -hmm. um, the relics and also the very genteel um, lady tour guide, I guess you could say, docent with her Southern accent. He felt that the relics and this uh, docent with her accent um, brought him in touch with the South mm -hmm. that he had come to see. Okay. Um, the other thing thank that you. I wanted yeah, to- I didn't know the essay, so thank oh, you. It's, 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 it in, it's collected in a okay. book 
called The American Scene. Okay. Um, Thank you. He came back at towards the end of his life, and he had different places he wanted to visit. And I have to say, his uh, his comments about many metropolitan areas up and down the East Coast are remarkable. Okay. Um, the other thing that uh, I really uh, I found so thought provoking um, in what you had to say um, was the the idea that before the Civil War, the kind of relics people collected were very different. And this started my process about thinking of what people collected from wars after the Civil War. And I'd love for your comments on that. I, um, I had an uncle who was killed in the Second World War in France. I mean, we certainly don't have his anything with his blood on it. And if we did, I'm not sure we would want to preserve it. So I'd love your comments on that. Right. Um, well, and, um, I'll be careful again not to get too graphic here. Um, but there's there's an unfortunate trade in um, body parts that actually goes back to the 17th century in the North American context. Um, during some of the New England wars um, with indigenous peoples in the area, um, heads would be decapitated and displayed and kept. Um, fingers that in turn happened during the Seminole Wars in Florida in the 19th century. And then there are examples from the American Civil War, Sullivan Ballou, and Joe knows the story well, um, who is the famous letter writer in Ken Burns's early episode on the Battle of um, um, Bull Run. Um, his head's eventually lobbed off and taken by Georgia soldiers. In World War II, there is a trade, especially in Japanese body parts, um, very um, grim. And uh, there's an anthropologist who wrote a really interesting book about what he calls dark trophies. Um, so I would just say, on the one hand, there is this continuation of objects that far surpass bloody coats or bullet shot um, pieces of wood that, that certainly has 17th century roots, but has escalated in a conflict um, in which the enemy is profoundly othered. And you often see the taking of, of body parts or heads during conflicts in which humans are, are othered. Um, with, with that said, in the world wars, there's a large trade in, in items linked to other nations. And so German pistols, German flags, Japanese flags. Um, both my grandparents fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater and both brought back, thankfully, rather banal items like flags and, and um, not in my family's case, but daggers. But there is this really un this dark underbelly of these so-called dark trophies that escalated during the World Wars. And again, it has a lot to, how, a lot to do with how they're portraying their enemy and how they're trying to other the enemy. Um, but I always sort of have that caveat that it has actually deeper American roots. Um, is something that we've done to people for a, for a long time. Um, there's also the problem of what to do with things like Nazi relics, um, items that have the iconography associated with the Third Reich on it. And it's been a, it's a terrible problem for curators. It's a terrible problem for, for families. And um, uh, there's a really interesting essay where one family try, tries to grapple with items that have been brought back from Nazi Germany during World War II by um, a GI that was in their family. And so, um, there's a lot of interesting sort of discussion on that. I can't remember the anthropologist's name, but the book is called Dark Trophies. And um, it's, it's uh, 
thematic and chronological. So he looks at, I think, about two centuries. But he has a lot of really good evidence from World War One and Two. I think that's all we're going to have time for, Jim. Oh. But thank you so well, much for a wonderful yeah. talk and a brilliant discussion. Thank, and thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you.